0: So, you want to know who I hate? Don't worry, it's none of you. In fact, I don't actually hate anybody, but now that I have your attention, because I'm going to go out on a limb here and say nobody was expecting that to be the first thing out of my mouth. I really don't hate anybody, but I, I used to hate people. And uh, some of the people uh, that I, I used to hate the most, and some of the people that it was hardest not to hate when I stopped hating people, it was, um, wasn't people that hurt me. It wasn't people that were mean to me. Um, you know, as you have to be an adult in the real world and be in leadership and make decisions that people don't like and and maybe encounter um, fallen people in a fallen world, you kind of have to get thick skin. You'll either, you'll either have thick skin and keep a soft heart or you'll have a pretty hard heart because you have thin skin. And so it wasn't even people that really hurt me all that much. It it was people that hurt my kids. Any parents in the room? Does that resonate? It's like, you can do what you want with me. Don't mess with my kids, right? And we've homeschooled, uh, so we haven't had to deal with, you know, the bullying and some of the things that take place um, that some friends of ours have had to go through. When we lived in Casper, we had dear friends of our families, and they're their oldest or their youngest son was just it was just terrible, and I know some of you have gone through that, and it resonates with you and I look out in in the audience today and I see people that i 've had one on one conversations with you know struggling with something going on with your kids it just it takes a different it takes a different uh, different place in your heart and it 's interesting if you do something to one of my kids don 't try to make it up to me <laughs> don't don 't You know, buy me gifts, don't send me money, don't sing me songs or praise my holy name, right? Like, you do something wrong to my kids, you need to make it up to them. You need to make it right with them. You need to do something for them. And, of course, there's a little exaggeration in here, but I hope the point's getting across. um, that, That how we treat God's kids really matters. All of them. And uh, to further illustrate this, uh, everywhere we've been, we've, we've moved around a lot. Ten years ago, we were in Casper, and then we were in West Virginia for a couple of years, and then we were in Indiana, and we've been here at Linwood for several, and look forward to being here for a long time. But everywhere we've been, we've had people that have endeared themselves to us because of the way they took care of our kids. And whether that was a volunteer in our Kids Way ministry here, Early on when we got here, there were a number of wonderful volunteers that just made our kids feel special, made our kids feel at home, knew they'd been through a move, knew that this was all new for them. Uh, Same thing happened in Indiana. We had some neighbors and friends in our church that were just phenomenal. In West Virginia, there were several people, and one in particular was an Easter egg hunt. Um, The first full year that we were there, we had a big Easter egg hunt uh, outreach at our our church. And... um, and we got kind of overwhelmed. We were expecting five or 600 people based on the prior year, and we ended up with about 1,000, maybe 1,200. It kind of got hard to count after a while, and we were parking people all over the place, and we ran out of registration forms and everything else. But it was awesome to have so many people there. And uh, when it got time for the actual hunt to begin, uh, there was a little kid's hunt, like the under-2s or maybe under-3s. And so Heather took Carson, who was under three. And I took Owen and the older two boys to the three- to five-year-old hunt. And I don't know if you've ever been to a three- to five-year-old Easter egg hunt, but it's a sight. Uh, there, there, this one, there were 50 or 60 kids, which meant that there were 100 to 150 adults that were watching the 50 to 60 kids. And most of them had their phones out, you know, recording it. And so when the horn went off and Owen took off, you know, he went over and picked up this egg. And then he walked by 25 what I would have thought were perfectly good eggs, to get that egg. And he was making his way through this field. And, and you might know where this is going. Uh, a rather large group of rather large people got between me and Owen. And I couldn't get around him, and I couldn't go through him, and I couldn't go under him, and I couldn't go over him. And I finally got around him. Maybe five seconds had passed, and Owen's gone. And he is nowhere to be seen. And I see Keaton and Ryan, his older brothers, and they said, Dad, Where's Owen? I, said, I don't see him. You guys need to stay with me, but we need to find him. And so we start looking, and a couple people picked up on the look on my face and I'm like, what's the matter? And I said, I can't find Owen. And the temperature starts to rise. And then Heather comes around the corner with Carson on her hip and she said, Where's Owen? And I said, We don't have Owen. We can't find him. And the temperature got a little higher. And uh, you start thinking thoughts that you don't ever want to think, you know, what if somebody came up the hill to this Easter egg hunt with, with a bad idea in mind, and uh, so we just kind of like, okay, we said a short prayer, I said, I'm going to go check the church in case he went, you know, back to the church or to my office or something like that, you guys, you two go this way, and by this time, her mother-in-law was there, and so they split up, and um, I'm walking into the church and out walks Jasmine Payne. I will never forget her a teenage girl that had served in kids uh, in the kids' ministry there and she's got Owen on her hip. <laughs> and I'll tell you what, Jasmine Payne still has a soft spot in my heart because she found Owen. He looked concerned. He looked confused. She said, why don't we go find your dad and picked him up and to find us. And so I tell that story just to illustrate how when you do something, when somebody does something for one of your kids, if you've got kids, that really means something, doesn't it? And, uh, and I think it means something to our Heavenly Father because we're created in the image of God. And His Word is absolutely clear that we love God by loving His kids. We love God by loving people. And, and people are the only thing in all of creation that moves the heart of God the way people do. Nothing else comes close And so much so that he he came himself to redeem all of us and to bring us uh, to be with him and be a part of his family. And that was kind of how we got started last week in this new series, The You Next to You. Uh, Before we could talk about The You Next to You, we had to talk about you. And so last week we talked about what's true about you. If you are in Christ, you are God's beloved. You are a beloved child of God in whom Christ dwells and delights. And so we looked at that, and we looked at the scriptural basis for that, and we looked at at this idea of, of how important it is that we know what's true about us. Because all sin is really ultimately a failure to see as God sees. Because if we saw as God sees, we would do as He says. And to sin means to miss the mark. And so we fail to see something, whether it's ourselves, or God, or the people around us. We fail to see something the way God sees it, and that's why we do something other than God has said to do. So our bottom line last week was that in Christ you are a beloved child of God in whom Christ dwells and delights. And our second bottom line last week was that what's true about you is true about the you next to you. That every single person you lock eyes with is beloved by God. And every single person that you lock eyes with, he desires that they would become his child, that someone like you would introduce them to their heavenly father and bring them into a relationship with him, into the family of God, where they can know what's true about them, that they are beloved children of God in whom Christ can dwell and delight. And so today, we're titling the message, Shifting the Focus. So we spent a whole message talking about you. Now we're shifting the focus to the you next to you. We're shifting the focus from ourselves to the people around us. And the bottom line today, which is really the bottom line for the whole series in a lot of ways, is that the focus of religion is you, but the focus of Christianity is the you next to you. And you might be thinking, well, isn't the focus of religion God? Or whatever God or whatever deities? And it's interesting, sociologists have actually spent a lot of time studying this, and they found that there's one common thread in all the world religions, that, that these religions are about meeting personal needs. And so whether it's a god or gods, that when there's a religion in force, it's man trying to earn God or the gods approval and favor and blessing. And so they do certain things. They offer sacrifices. They practice various rituals. They sing various songs. And the focus If it's about me and meeting my needs, it's not about God. And that's what religion does. It's about, I want to appease God so that I will enjoy his blessing. But the good news for you is that Christianity is not a religion. Christianity is a relationship. It's a relationship with Jesus Christ. In fact, you go all the way back into the Old Testament, God always desired a personal relationship with his people, so much so that he entered into bilateral covenants where he says, You do this, and I'll do this. And then he became one of us so that he could do the things that we were supposed to do so that he could redeem all of us and bring us into the family of God. No other religion has a story like that because they're all religious systems instead of relationships with the one true God. And so instead of using religion or using God to meet our needs and to appease God— Christianity presents a transformational relationship with Christ where the focus becomes about meeting the needs of others. The focus becomes not about me and getting my needs met. God says, you're taken care of. Now you can begin to serve. You can begin to love wholeheartedly and open-handedly the people around you, the you next to you, the people around you. And so where religion is about securing my safety and my security and my personal preferences and rights, Christianity and a relationship with Jesus Christ, a transforming relationship with Christ, is about living a life of love and self-sacrifice to the people around us. And there's really no debating this, but if you want to hear it from from Jesus' mouth himself, perhaps the, the clearest place that we could look would be John Chapter 13, verse 34 and 35. And there should be, I think, a sermon on this passage in every church at least once a year, maybe more often than that. Uh, But this is kind of a loaded moment uh, in the Gospels. In John's Gospel, this happens to be within the last 24 hours of Jesus' life. So you can bet your bottom dollar they are paying attention. They are hanging on every word that Jesus has to say. And in John 13, verses 34 and 35, Jesus says, The new command I give you, go to church. As I have gone to church, so you must go to church. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you go to church. Oh, that's not what it says, is it? (laughs) Okay, let's try again. A, A new command I give you. Sing me songs. Hymns, not choruses. As I have sung songs, so you also must sing songs. By this, all men will know that you're my disciples if you sing songs. That's not what it says. What does it say? A new command I give you. Love one another as I have loved you 24 hours before the cross, 24 hours before he literally gave his life for each and every one of us and for each and every one of them. After three and a half years of following this guy around and watching the way he interacted with people, people who were far from God, tax collectors, sinners, the blind, the lame, the weak, bringing people back from the dead. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And so, what he didn't say is just as important as what he did say, as the misreading. Made very clear. He didn't say go to church. He didn't say make sure you give me money. And some of you are about ready to amen that. Yeah, he didn't ever say anything about giving money. He didn't tell us which type of songs to sing or how often or what form. And he didn't add to the list of don'ts either. He didn't add to the list of, of things not to do with this new command that he gave us. Instead, he told us to do something for his kids. God, through, through the person of Jesus Christ, tells us, love one another. If you forget everything else I told you, Jesus is saying, love one another. Do something for my kids. And in so doing, he gives us the why behind the what. He gives us the why behind the what. All the Old Testament, all the laws, everything that has come before this, this new command gives us the why behind that. Is it about you or is it about the you next to you? Because when he tells us to love one another, he's also giving us the why behind all the don'ts. All the don'ts in the Old Testament, all the laws in the Old Testament don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. Why? Because it hurts people. Why don't you lie and steal and kill and commit adultery? Because that hurts people, it hurts his kids. When they do that, I mean, it, it hurts my feel. I mean, it hurts me in a deep level when my kids get in a fight and I got to pull them apart. It doesn't happen very often. But when it does, I'm like, I don't want to see you two hurting each other. I can resonate with that. And, and to really fully understand this, you have to understand the definition of agape love. You got to remember the definition of agape love. There's various words that can be used for, or translated as love. In this passage, he uses the Greek word agape, and agape means a self-sacrificing surrender of your rights for the needs of another person, a self-sacrificing surrender uh, to love someone unconditionally, to love someone the way God loves us, to give of yourself in order to bless and encourage and strengthen this other person. And so we have to shift the focus. He's not commanding an emotional response. He's not commanding that we feel something. He's commanding that we do something. This agape love is a verb. It's not a feeling. He's not saying go feel good about each other. I tell my kids to like it sometimes. You're going to do it and you're going to like it. But God doesn't tell us to do that. He doesn't tell us to like it. He doesn't tell us even to like each other. He tells us to love each other. And he would much rather... You choose to love people that you don't necessarily like than for you to try to force yourself to like somebody that you got no interest in loving. And so it's very, very important that we get this one command right, and it makes it crystal clear that the focus of religion is not you because self-sacrificing love puts you second or third or last and puts somebody else, the you next to you, first because the focus of religion is you and the focus of Christianity is the you next to you. But this is not strictly a New Testament concept, okay? In fact, this idea goes all the way back to page six in your Bible. This goes all the way back to the first family and the first story that we see after the fall. So if you have a Bible and you want to turn to page six here in the room um, or Genesis chapter 4, if you're joining us online, uh, you can open up an online Bible or it's going to be on the screen behind me. But Genesis chapter 4 tells us this first story after the fall, and it illustrates this really, really powerfully, and it tells us and shows us why this matters so much, why this idea that it's about the you next to you matters so much. So in Genesis chapter 4, they've just been kicked out of the garden uh, right after the fall that you can read all about in Genesis 3. And we read this. Adam lay with his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. She said, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. Later, she gave birth to his brother Abel. And what happens next here is essentially the birthplace of religion. It's the birthplace of man trying to get his needs met Through God. It's the birthplace of a religion that's more focused on me than the people around me or even the deity. Now, Abel kept flocks and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. But Abel brought fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flocks. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry, and his face was downcast. Now, there's a couple things going on here that you kind of have to understand. When, when you read verses 3 and 4 together, this, this phrase, in the course of time, sort of carries the idea, when he got around to it, <laughs> when it was convenient, eventually, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. And then we get this really powerful word, but, at the beginning of verse four. But, in English grammar terms, if we go back to eighth grade, but is a disjunctive conjunction. So, conjunctions bring two statements together, but a disjunctive conjunction shows the difference between the two, right? It's disjunctive conjunction. So, it's marrying these two verses together, but it's showing that there's a very different thing happening in the second statement, kind of like when somebody comes to you and they give you a little compliment, and then they say, but, and tell you what they really think. They didn't come over to compliment you. <laughs> they dressed up a suggestion in a rented tuxedo of kindness, right? Or, or when somebody, you know, says, oh man, that was just amazing. But you know what they're really after. You know what there really is on their heart. It's a disjunctive conjunction. Okay, so I think you understand that now. And uh, it says this. It says, but Abel brought fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. So there's a difference here between some of, you know, when he got around to it, some of the fruit, to fat portions. If you've ever had a steak, you know the fat's where it's at, right? The fat is where the flavor is that's the best part he brings the fat portions to god and we're told that god looked on his offering with favor but on cain and his offering he did not look with favor now he didn't say he's displeased he just didn't look with favor the same way and so cain when it's really about you cain's upset right he's upset he's angry he's downcast because is his offering more about god or more about himself And then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? Side note. When God asks a question, it's not because he doesn't know the answer. It's because the person he's asking the question needs to figure out the answer. And so he's guiding him through this. And he says, why are you so angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you but you must master it. So God comes to him with compassion, comes to him with a simple solution, and the ball is in Cain's court. And here's what he does. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out into the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. You see, his religion was about himself. His religion was about getting his needs met. His religion was about God looking upon him with favor. And so he killed his brother in anger, in jealousy, and in hatred. But it doesn't stop there. This, this last verse fascinates me. So the Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? Again, not because he doesn't know. God knows. There's no pause in divine omniscience. He knows. But Cain, and look at his response. I don't know, he replied, which is a lie. And then this flippant question that he asks, am I my brother's keeper? It's all about me, God. Why are you asking me about him? I don't know where he is. Am I my brother's keeper? Am I responsible for him? And one scholar put it this way, that this is the first question that man asks of God in all of the Bible. It comes on page seven. And it's this flippant response. And yet, the entire rest of Scripture answers that question. Yes, you are your brother's keeper. It's not about you. It's all about him. It's all about the people around you. It's all about worshiping me, loving me by loving them. And he makes this crystal clear through the story of Cain and Abel. You are your brother's keeper. You are your sister's keeper. Your religion is not about you. I'm inviting you into a relationship where you can trust me to take care of you so that you can bless those around you, so that you can take care of those around you. You are your brother's keeper. Because the focus of religion is you, but the focus of Christianity is the you next to you. And Jesus kind of puts a bow on the whole thing in, in a really powerful story right at the end of his gospel ministry in Matthew 22. He gets cornered by some scribes, some Pharisees. And they're trying to test him. They say, what's the greatest commandment? And he immediately answers. Love the Lord your God with all your heart with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. And he's citing Deuteronomy 6, and he's citing Leviticus 19 from the law, and they know it. They know that that that's exactly what it says. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. That there's a vertical relationship that we have with God, that we love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And as we love him, we love our neighbors as ourselves. We love the people around us as we love And God. In fact, he's saying you can't have one without the other. You can't say you love God and hate people. It doesn't work. They're mutually exclusive. They're incompatible. So much so, God set it up this way. That you love God by loving the you next to you. You love God by loving his kids. You love God when you love your neighbor. You love God best when you trust him completely and love the people around you wholeheartedly and open-handedly. You love God when you love your neighbor. And somewhere along the line, we got to this idea that, that we shouldn't love certain people. We should keep our distance. We shouldn't have anything to do with them. We got this idea that to love somebody is to wholeheartedly endorse their lifestyle. No, Jesus didn't say that. He said, love one another, period. There's no asterisk. There's no unless they. It's just love people. Love your neighbor. Love your Republican neighbor and your Democrat neighbor. You don't have to agree to love somebody. I know, I'm meddling. you got a postcard. Six 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 and a half weeks to the election, you could pray every day. You could read those scriptures and pray every day. And then, you know, pray a really dangerous prayer like asking God, would you put somebody in my path that is very different than me and that I would not naturally choose to love? And would you give me an opportunity to show love to somebody that maybe I've never chosen to show love to before. Not endorsing their lifestyle, their decisions, their policies, their values, but just choosing to show love in some way. To extend a hand. And this is hard. (laughs) This is hard. And it should get easier over time. Like this used to be really hard. I couldn't even look certain people in the eye. I just like, Lord, I don't want to talk to that person. I don't want to have anything to do with that person. And yet, the more time I spend in his word, the more time I spend in fellowship, the more time I spend with brothers and sisters in Christ who are working this out in their own lives and trying to figure out how to love people that they don't really like that much and trying to figure out how to be the hands and feet of Christ, the easier it gets. Because... If it's just religion, if it's just do more, try harder to get more of God's favor, then we're kind of on our own. But if the focus of Christianity is the you next to you, if it's the people around us, if it's not just the people in the room, but the people who aren't in the room, the people who are doing their grocery shopping on Sunday morning or just sleeping in because they don't think there's anything better going on, then we can go and we can love those people and we can bring them into the family of God and we can be kind of like Jasmine Payne in a way. We can find somebody who's lost and confused like my little Owen was when he was three years old and we can put them on a hip and take them back to dad. And that's the focus of Christianity. That's the focus. That's why Jesus said, you love one another. You love me best when you love the people around you. And so that's my heart, that's my prayer, that each and every one of us will pray dangerous prayers, that we'll get involved in a discipleship group, that we'll work this out with people, that we'll sit around a table and talk about what God's saying to us through his word. And we'll be involved and engaged in that, and we'll be growing as disciples and eventually begin making disciples who make disciples who make disciples. If you're involved in a a discipleship group, uh, thank you. I'm I'm so excited about that. If you're not involved in the discipleship group and you'd like to be involved in the discipleship group, you'd like to start being discipled or you would like to maybe just take the plunge and start discipling somebody else, then there's a a link on the screen. You can just go to tinyurl.com slash Linwood Discipleship and fill it out. Let me know. We'll, We'll work with you to help you find a place that you can begin growing as a disciple, learning to love one another, working this out with the people around you, working this out in relationship with others, spending time in the Word on a regular basis, and praying dangerous prayers like, like God, help me to find somebody to show your love to this week and watch what happens. And so I'll close with, with that question. Who can you show love to this week? Maybe a better question, who will you show love to this week? Maybe God's already put somebody in your mind. Maybe it's crystal clear and you know, you know what you're to do and how you're to do it. My prayer is that we'll respond in faith and that we'll help bring some people back to God. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for your goodness. We're so thankful for your grace. We're so thankful for your presence in our lives. And we're thankful for your word, Lord even when it challenges us, even when it gets us outside of ourselves. And we pray, God, that we would be a people who are quick to seek after you, quick to lend a hand and to show love to the people around us. Pray, God, that we'll be quick to show love to your kids, all of them, We won't carve any out. And Lord, it strikes me that there might be somebody listening to this, whether they're in the room or they're joining us online, that they just realized it's not about them. It's about you, that you invited us into a relationship where we can put all of our trust, all of our faith, all of our hope in you. And let it rest securely there. And that that can free us up, Lord. To go out into this world and and to love and to serve in your name. And so, Lord, if there's somebody that that thought it was about do more, try harder. That thought Christianity was all about the do's and the don'ts. Then I pray that today might be the day of salvation. Today might be a day when they turn to you and say, Lord Jesus, I don't... I don't pretend to know it all and I know I've fallen short and I know I can't win that game, but I reach out and take your hand today and I accept you as Lord and Savior. I accept your perfect sacrifice on my behalf. I claim the blood of Jesus over all my sins, all my shortcomings. And I choose to follow you. I want to learn from you. I want to become more like you. If somebody's praying that prayer, Lord, we rejoice in that. We celebrate in that. And for others that maybe felt a little conviction, God, I pray that we would be a people who lean into conviction, lean into your spirit and respond in faith and seek to make our lives about the people around us, about loving your kids. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.